Hello, my name is Oliver Fox. I work on the National Poetry Competition for the Poetry Society, and we've got some poets in to talk about their favourite poems from past National Poetry Competitions, what makes those poems tick, what makes them work, what lifts those poems off of the page. Um, with me, I've got one of the judges of this year's National Poetry Competition, Mona Arshi. Mona worked as a human rights lawyer for a decade before starting her writing career. Her debut collection, Small Hands, won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection in 2015. And her second collection, Dear Big Gods, was published by Pavilion in spring 2019. Uh, and I've also got Wayne Holloway-Smith. He's the winner of the 2018 National Poetry Competition for his poem, The Posh Mums Are Boxing in the Square. And he's the author of A Pocket Book, Beloved, In Case You've Been Wondering, uh, and a full-length collection, Alarum. Uh, and his second collection is due to be published in 2020, and it's called Love Minus Love. Um, so before I hand things over to our guests in the studio, if you feel inspired to write your own National Poetry Competition entry uh, after this podcast, it is currently open as of this recording. Judging the competition alongside Mona are Morris Riordan and Helen Mort, and there are 10 cash prizes on offer, including a first prize of £5,000. For more info and to enter, head to poetrysociety.org.uk forward slash MPC. Mona, thanks for coming on this podcast. Pleasure. Um, which poem have you brought for us? I've chosen uh, a poem by Momtaza Mary called Oiled Legs Have Their Own Subtext. Uh, and would you like to read the poem for us? Yeah. Oiled Legs Have Their Own Subtext. Doctor says there is something wrong with your thyroid. You are known to leak everywhere, to take the shape of whatever, wherever you are, poured into. You do not contest his claim or any other man with his hands round your throat before the appointment. You slice a heart, swallow breath mints to disguise the miasma of desperation, slide a ring onto each finger, bejewel a somatic distraction, let the Gulf of Aden run ragged from the twinned lakes of shoulder blades, an inherited wetness behind the ears, you kiss the mirror's cold navel with the kind of pride that comes naturally to those born carrying history as an extra limb to the sticky yoke of grief. You do not think you're a good person, not with the way you cough up contradiction, phlegm, thick as a ramco, poverty, slick jaw, or how you gloss your mouth with humanitarian shade of pink, dress each lie in crushed pearls. But because you remember the names of your brothers, never your sisters, your sister's sisters, your sisters who are an occurrence, never an event, never a shudder, when they stop occurring, there is nothing to mark their arrival or leaving, Hoden, age 21, and six months, who doused herself in liquid surrender, set herself alight, her second attempt at peace. In the bulletin thumbnail she wears, royal blue, looks like a woman you would powder your nose next to, at a wedding, wrist against cheek, soft wick of her rimmed eyes, banji queen, doe-eyed diva, dow-hearted, what did they do to you, onto you, at Noro Regional Processing Centre? What did this processing look like? OPCI, where detainees sew their lips together, silence themselves before they are silenced, where women hoard cloth, 
to plug their bleeding, hide from both inmates and guards, carry the children of men who did not ask, infants who did not ask, an island of orphans, of what you could have been, but it is not you, will never be you, from across the ambit. Oh, for fate's insurgencies, its sweet edge, the topologies of our lives, their sharpened sighs, soft implosions of flip-flops on airport floors. You dream in eastern time, wait for the hijars to collect, the bags under your eyes for her to warm your pulse with her hands, her cratered lap. Friends described her as a gentle soul who had been destroyed, by her time in detention, you note the alliterative phrasing, a velvet undoing, there are as many ways to be destroyed as there are droplets on the tongue to describe it. Hoden rolls in your mouth, draws salt from saliva. You think of the white of nerve endings, the melting of dermis, grass hissing underfoot. All that separates her from you me is a slip of generation, a fistful of decades in another life. The war that broke you breaks ten years ahead, and you are the one drowning. You are forgotten in this life. You rest on the pillow of abstraction, on your passport, the freedom papers of this age, your proximity to the bodies that terrorise hers. The rolled dice of your life is, it is what it is, Every poem that falls, chandeliered, is about this distance, its heavy head on your lap, its hot laugh on your neck, its doll-like teeth marks. You have never known a violence worse than coincidence. Thank you. So what makes this poem work for you? Well, um, first of all, I, I, it's a quite a difficult poem to read in many ways. Mm -hmm. It's a... Um, a, a really surprising, sort of quite experimental, quite, I would say it's a prose poem. But what's really unusual about it is the density mm -hmm. and the kind of accretion, almost accumulation of images that you start hearing. And there's something really interesting about the poem in terms of its form, because it has an unusual structure. It has forward slashes that sort of provide a score for the poem for the reader because there's no other punctuation in the poem and and what's what I really admire about the poem is the fact that this poem is about some of the most terrible things on earth um, there's a lot of violence in the poem it's sort of um, it's, it's full of corporeal images about um, the body the mouth the eyes um, things happening to a body and and yet it's not sentimental at all. She's able to carry this poem on, on, the, on the page with, with a difficult subject matter, and she's able to do this in a, in a form that really is, is, uh, is, is powerful. So um, the other thing I really found, just, just reading the poem again, was the fact that these little sort of forward slashes act like little um, gateways or turnstiles uh, uh, when you read the poem. Sort of, uh, so you have to sort of slow down and sit with some of these quite difficult images whilst you're whilst you're reading it and again that's that's something that the poet has thought about and so it's a very carefully crafted poem um and it works i, I mean I've, I've read this poem many times and i and i really feel like it's 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 its power accumulates from reading and reading again and and for me really this is this is a sign of a very good poem because you want to read it again
and is there kind of a point in the poem where everything kind of comes together and works? Do you feel like it works right from the start? I think it works because you, first of all, you have a very odd title, um, which I'm sort of okay with. And it is, this is the other thing about the poem. I, I sort of feel like there's so much of the poem. I, I kind of, I need to read it again because so much of the poem's um, imagery is it, it's sort of inferred. You're not quite sure where you are. Mm. Um, and, and actually I feel quite heady reading it because there is, it's so loaded with quite a lot of dense imagery. Um, and I think that's, you know, and, and I think that's why I think it works is because it is, it so much is inferred and you, you feel like you are participating in the poem. I think for me where it really starts flying is when we were introduced to Hoden. So we have a character um, and, and so you're, and you're sort of worried about the character because you hear about the character and then you see her again later on in the, in the poem. Um, and it's got an amazing ending. It's got these, these really beautiful... It sort of breaks down at the end and it's got these really beautiful last few lines, which is, it's dull like teeth marks, violence worse than coincidence, and then a last slash in the poem. So going back to the title, Wayne, how important is a title for you in a poem? I ask you this as you're a poet that often will let your title bleed into the last line of your writing. I don't know. For me, I don't really pay too much attention to titles a lot of the time. Um, I think that people uh, work in different ways. And I think Montaza's title is a thing that grabs your attention and invites you in to then read like, uh, it's quite a, an interesting title in that like it could be read in a couple of ways, but it has that a level of quirk to it or something that then operates in almost juxtaposition to the subject matter of the poem which um, I also think is an excellent piece of work, like pretty much everything that Montaza um, writes, which, uh, and she's someone that I'm frequently um, in equal parts in awe of and also jealous of. It's interesting what you say about the juxtaposition, because I think that this a poem like this really relies on really carefully thinking about where things are going to be next to each other. And... Um, and that's not always easy to do. And in a poem like this, in particular, where, where you're dealing with some really difficult um, issues, violence, violence against women, um, war, surrender, it's, it, it's, it's one of the, it's, the subject matter is one of the most difficult subject matters. Mm. And yet it, it's sort of handled so bravely in this poem. And, and I guess when I was talking about all the kind of inferences, I feel like I'm... That's kind of what I like about poetry generally, but which is why I like the poem so much, is that I actually feel uneasy about the poem because right. not everything is given to me. I feel like I, I kind of need to read into the... It's interesting, all the legs have their own subtext as a title. I kind of... I feel like it's in between the kind of pressure of some of those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, I was interested also um, when you were talking about how the poem was constructed with uh, the sort of floor forward slashes and stuff. The way that I read it... Cause, the forward slashes I uh, as sort of gateways, I think, and sort of like visually, you each image kind of escapes itself and climbs over those forward slashes mm -hmm. and, and, and meshes itself with the next one. The poem's got a real sort of knotty texture to it, like in its density that um, I've really, I, 
I've really enjoyed. I think the poem holds itself um, incredibly well. And it is definitely a considered piece of work, but also it, well, it goes off, doesn't it? Like mm. the poem kind of goes off and it, it starts running and it doesn't yeah, stop. Yeah. And that's, for me, the mark of some of my favourite types of, uh, of work. Where there's a, there isn't so much of a turn as well. It's like every single line like pivots a little bit. Mm. She's very considerate of the reader as well, I think, in that she's giving us um, textured and really interesting imagery um, to supplement the, the horrible subject matter, I think. So, Wayne, when you talk about a poem turning and pivoting, would you be able to unpack that a little bit as to what you mean by that? In general? Yeah, in general. Yeah. Well, I don't often really like poems that start and then finish in the same way. Like, I don't like, I don't really care for linearity too much. And the, I was reading this like, introduction to this anthology when I was first starting writing, um, American anthology called Legitimate Dangers. And it was the first time I heard someone say, like, if you know how the poem's going to finish when you start writing it, then it isn't a poem. Mm -hmm. And um, that really sort of took me back, because other people have been like, I never start writing a poem uh, unless I know the last line. So it was a new way of thinking about it at that time. It's always stayed with me. And I think that there's a degree of discovery um, as the writer is making the piece, and certainly for the reader. Um, so when Moan was talking about surprises... Part of the surprise is you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. So there's always a pivot. There's always a turn. And sometimes that happens like once in quite a dramatic fashion, like the poem perhaps that I'm going to read later. Not perhaps, I'm definitely going to read it later. Um, um, whereas in this one, there's a, a, a tiny marginal turn in each line um, that still you're like, oh my God, what's what images am I going to be hit with next? Like, and how are they going to take place? Which is part of the art of it. But it never, it never feels quite like Momtaza is ad-libbing and it never quite feels like um, it's all mapped out in mm. like quite a, a boring way. So a question I'd have for both of you about um, this poem, which by the way, if listeners would like to read, you can do so on the Poetry Society's website. Um, I think often when a poet wants to write, especially if they've been through sort of big, serious things in their life or want to write about big, serious, heavy subjects, just like this poem, what are some of the kind of pitfalls that you can see for a poet kind of looking to tackle big, heavy subjects that, you know, like a poem like this that involves like the personal as well as the idea of like statehood, actual violence as well as political violence, what, what advice would you give to a poet that's looking to, I suppose, explore trauma in their writing and looking to do it well? I think that poets just need to be reassured that a poem contain, can contain almost anything and has always historically been able to contain, you know, almost anything. Um, most painful things can, can be contained in the poem, you know, I know people say, oh, you know, poets are only interested in death and commas, but actually we are, there's a reason why elegy has always been around and endures and, and why it's possible to put trauma in poems. And I, and I think that 
what I think you have to sort of bear in mind is that the best poems for me are are still poems. So there's some sort of act of transformation that sort of happens. Um, so the subject matter can be as difficult as, you know, Montaz is writing about. Um, but actually, it there is a sort of, on the page itself, there's, there's a sort of transformation of the experience. And that's what makes it a poem. And those are the poems that really, I think, are successful poems with that sort of subject matter. I don't know what you think, Wayne. Um, I think that what's good is when people can be controlled by their experiences and um, their feelings can be dictated to by their experiences. And one of the things that I think poems like Montazas does and, do, and also po uh, poems about perhaps trauma or difficult experiences in general, that often the poet can develop a sense of agency over those experiences. So they're not necessarily just being made to feel something or their feelings and their um, the way that they respond to those experiences aren't necessarily just di being dictated to them anymore. But that in speaking and writing about those things, an important sense of agency is developed by the poet. So I feel like um, there's... Uh, an anger and a sense of urgency in the poem that you just read. And also within that sense of urgency, um, a sense of not quite authority, but a sense of the poet saying, this is my subject matter. This is something that I'm taking ownership of now. And you, I don't know, the people that did it, that did these terrible things, don't have them anymore now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, mm. a, I'm taking this now and I'm telling the world how it is and that and and that's probably like quite a terrible way of talking about uh, quite a limited way of talking about it but then i think that the whole point of poetry is to do the things that are our natural english language limit limits us with uh, every day right so we can't often talk about our experiences with a level of nuance that we can within a poem so th that poem and and good poems in general that discuss or contend with is a difficult subject matter um often do so in a way that our everyday english wouldn't allow us to something i'd like to ask you wayne this isn't entirely related to montaza's poem although it's interesting that it's a poem that works so well despite avoiding sentimentality. Yeah. Um, an entrant emailed me quite recently, worried that if she wrote a poem that was sentimental, that the judges would kind of look down on it as cheap or trite or whatever. Um, what advice would you give someone who's looking to be kind of sentimental uh, in their writing? Thinking about writing, I often struggle to articulate what I'm doing or why what I think it. is good or how to do it. Mm. I don't think that there is one formula. There's no trick. Um, I don't know if there is or not, man. I'm sure there are tricks, but those tricks very often become tropes and then very, very often become boring, don't they? Like, quickly. Um, I, I don't know, on sentimentality, like I was reading that thing, Mary Ruffell, uh in her essay on sentimentality, doesn't she say something like, um, the act of writing a poem is inherently sentimental, mm. so your poem doesn't have to be. 
Like, which I think, you know, that might be true. I don't know. I'm definitely not going to contest anything that Mary Ruffell says. But I often think, like, irony, I don't really have any time for it anymore. Like, ironic distance is just not something I'm too interested in anymore. And I think that as uh, the times that we live in and the experiences that, like, I want to discuss and we've been discussing don't, they deserve more than just a standoffishness. Do you know what I mean? Um, I, and so if sentimentality is, is a way of doing that, then do it. But there's a difference, I think, between sentimentality and, I don't know, cliche, perhaps? Or like well-worn tropes as a way of being mm. sentimental. Like when my mum sends me a birthday card, apart from for some reason putting... Uh, to my son in inverted commas which I'm not quite sure what she's trying to <laughs> say like is she telling me that I'm adopted I don't know but apart from that like there's a sentimentality in that kind of formulaic Christmas card birthday card uh, little poem and then there's a, there's a way of getting beyond that by writing specifically about um, an unusual or, or from an unusual angle I don't know if that's sentimental though or just like honest yeah. or earnest I suppose. earnest yeah again I don't know it's weird it? socially I'm quite put off by like earnestness but then I don't know I think I think vulnerability as opposed to sentimentality is something that I'm becoming more and more interested in how about you Mona if a, if a poem wears its sort of heart on its sleeve, if it's done well and it's interesting and it's, the language is interesting and, and it's well-crafted and, you know, there's something that I, I'm actually interested in reading, then I'm, I'd, I'd probably really like the poem. But I think it's just how it's handled. And, and basically, I think it really depends on the language. I mean, you could have a poet... Um, who's decided they're going to write the most virtuous poem in the world, but if they haven't, and they're going to avoid sentimentality, but if they haven't used interesting language or anything that makes it some, you know, makes it new or exciting or the syntax is boring, um, it's going to be a not a very good poem. Do you know what I mean? So, what, what do you mean by interesting language? Well, you see, that for me is it's very connected with what a poem is. Yeah, and so. When I read a poem, like Mumtaz's poem and the poem that you're going to read in a moment um, too, uh, how do you work out whether or not it's poetry? And oh. for me, it's a very, it's a, a, I have a bodily response to a poem. Oh. I have a response. It's that whole thing about um, Emily Dickinson's, you know, does it make the back of my hairs on my head, you know, does it, does it take the top of your head off? You know, yeah. does it, and, and I guess so much of, when reading poetry and judging poems actually is is about you know are you are the atoms of your body shifting for me mm. and i think and that's for me how as a reader you know and, and pleasure in reading as well it's how does it affect me the thing is like someone like montaza will come along that you you didn't know a poem could happen like that mm. so there's no way of me ever saying to anyone else like this is how you should write a poem because that's how I want that's going to make me respond in a certain way because Montaza had never written that poem before I'd never read it before and then all of a sudden someone like her comes along and, and writes a killer poem like that and then 
And now I'm like, oh, also a poem can happen like this. Everything before about poems that I thought, that might still be true. Additionally, you can also do this thing that Montaza just did. Or maybe you never can because she's probably the only one that can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, partly it's instinct. Yeah. You know, I guess that's what I'm saying. And partly it's it's then working out how they did it you know yeah. and that's kind of what we're trying to do with Bob yeah, Dawson's yeah, yeah. phone trying to work out how she made this this you know gorgeous piece of work yeah but for me yeah the kind of the first kind of bur- uh, the kind of hurdle is does it has it has it actually made an impression on me mm. is it has it actually made an, a, an impression on me so Wayne could you tell us uh, which poem you've brought um I brought The Body in the Library by Jane Yeh. I'm going to read it. It always starts with a dead girl somewhere in the picture, lukewarm and pretty in an organdy crinoline, one arm sticking out from under a credenza. There is a foreigner with dark hair and a secret who says, it is not me, when he is questioned. A shady dressmaker who's missing a finger a doctor struck off for fiddling with his patients. Another girl in a bedroom, the second victim, dolling herself up in French scent and mascara. Pretty lips and curls smile back at her from the mirror. She has a date with the killer. She just doesn't know it. The detective follows the clues. He is a metaphor. Like the girl in the library, like the guilty pistol, like the dressmaker's friend with a fatal knack for murdering women, like the end of a story or its aftermath, the part that doesn't get written four years later when the case has been closed and the bodies have been forgotten, how the dead we have failed to keep remembering are alone. So, why that poem? Conversely to what I said before, I like the title in this. I think it, like... Obviously, it frames the poem, doesn't it? It gives it, like, situates it within a particular context. Um, I like that Jane takes for granted uh, that we're going to recognise all of the genre tropes. Each line has a specificity to it and an image. Like, none of it is uh, works in abstract, Mm -hmm. so every line kind of builds upon the one uh, that went before. And then she notices, like, the quirky, weird details, not, like, the ones that you would expect to find. So we still know the context in which she's writing, but she does it from, like, a slightly oblique angle, I, I think. Um, so I love all of that stuff, but then what I really love is the detective follow, follows the clues. He is a metaphor. And then we realise that, actually, everything's a metaphor. So everything that's come up until this point, what we were talking about before, the shift or the turn or the pivot, this one goes completely wild, doesn't it, in in that way. Um, When we realise everything that she's described, she's now saying, actually, it's just a metaphor. What is it a metaphor for? Well, in this case, it's a metaphor for, you know, um, the dead we've failed and failed to keep remembering and how they're alone. Fine. But also, like, what it speaks to me about in terms of poetry is I can make whatever I want mean whatever I want. All of a sudden, Jane's given me license, right? So I've taken this genre, and she said, actually, this guy and everything else in this poem is a metaphor. 
and I could just smash whatever I want up against all of that imagery and try and make meaning, new meaning out of something that I've just decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do. You see what I, I mean? That may be uh, slightly too adventurous or whatever, but it really, reading this poem really gives me license to sort of attempt to go somewhere different. Like I was saying before, it isn't linear. You think it's going to be, and it, she's gently sort of describing genre tropes all the way through. And I imagine readers would be like, oh, yeah, I recognise that. And, oh, that's quite funny. And it's got the ease not me bit in, which we all kind of recognise, etc. But then the real kind of poetry for me happens when she suddenly like switches it up and says, no, this is what, this is what the poem's about, or this is what I'm telling you the poem's about. That's why I like the poem. And like, how do you think she kind of makes that work in a real poetic sense where, you know, this doesn't feel like just a pastiche or a satire of something. It's its, its own poem with its own agenda. Yeah. yeah, she takes, she starts off maybe as pastiche, but what lifts it off the page and what makes it resonate and what makes, what makes me feel that it is or could be connected to a personal experience of the poet is where it goes in the kind of latter section the the dead that we've forgotten to remember um and how they're alone like who hasn't experienced um death in their in, in their family or with their loved ones or someone that they care about and how how can you escape the guilt of sometimes not thinking about those people there's a, there's a depth to it that you that look for me made it feel incredibly personal and the thing that uh, i think is incredible about the poem is the way that it wasn't personal she's taking the piss out of like agatha christie or something and then all of a sudden with that twist um it, it goes towards the universal of death the fact that we've all experienced that but also the way that it's articulated for me, makes it feel like there is an emotional connection there. And because she's had or articulated that emotional connection in that very specific way, it garners a level of empathy for me. So like something in me feels immediately kind of like caught or held onto by something in, 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 in Jane or her poem. But also kind of potentially in the way that Mona touched on before um, because she does shift from writing about these kind of fictional ideas to something a lot more real. Yeah. It is almost about the writing process and that these kind of tropes that might seem uh, silly or cliched or is rooted in something real and horrible. Right. And she's kind of making that connection saying as a poet, as a writer, as a filmmaker, if you're making something a bit schlocky, mm. you know, even if you're making a B movie, that B movie is still rooted in something real and horrible, potentially. I don't know. What do you think, Mona? Yeah, I love this poem. Um, I'm not surprised you, you, you chose it, yeah. Wayne. Um, I, and actually in contrast to Montaza's poem, this is a, this is a title, which is doing so much because you are set, you are setting, you know, yeah. here you are, in, you yeah. know, in terms of the, you're straight into the genre and the tone is perfect. Yeah. And it's, there's, it's such an, this, it starts off with such an arresting line. Yeah. A dead girl in the, in the always, picture. Always, always a dead girl, right? But what I find really interesting about the poem is the fact that you, you kind of are led down one alleyway yeah. 
and then you're completely ambushed by the time you get to the fourth verse and and so you're kind of really and we were talking about this kind of shift yeah. you're, you kind of shifted completely out of your comfort yeah. zone so you'll kind of feel like you're in quite familiar territory and actually you're not and, and that's yeah. one thing i really really like about her work anyway is yeah. this kind of like simultaneously feeling like you're very kind of familiar and then feeling really unsafe all of a sudden and i like feeling like that in a poem actually and i feel yeah. like that in this poem in particular and and i think you're right i think that i she's very good at sort of keeping herself out of her her poems yeah yeah but you can feel there's an echo somewhere there's something right, right, that's right. also left that is also um the poet or something that that is kind of generous you know right. that she's giving us and i and that's that's very clear in the last last verse yeah yes that's a really good way of putting it actually i wish i'd said that the echo uh if if we had an opportunity if i was in control of editing this mm. i'd edit you out and edit myself in and have yeah. said that line <laughs> but um i think that's true but also like the echo and the generosity of that echo if that's um how we're allowed to think about it now um is almost going back to sentimentality or whatever or how to write it because it's less in your face it's not telling you this was my experience it kind of invites you in more doesn't it we're allowed to feel more mm. because she hasn't put herself at the front I, of the, yeah. the the frame or whatever it's a very it's, very good way of, of, of looking at it and i've never seen it like that actually because i think the sort of lack, the kind of lack, the sort of stepping out slightly right. has allowed us, allows us to participate more yeah, actually yeah, yeah. in the poem. Yeah, it's like she steps back, mm. so we step forward, yeah, yeah. which, um, yeah, that's nice. I like, I like thinking about it like that. And on that point, how much do you think about the reader when you're writing a poem? Yeah, how much do you think about the reader, Maria? <laughs> Uh, I try not to think about the reader until the end. Right. Until and the end of a poem. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, actually, I, I think that if you kind of, I don't know how you feel, but, but basically when I'm writing a poem, I sort of try and not think about anything else apart from like just writing the poem and trying right. to get the hell out of the way of the poem and oh. trying to listen to the poem and try to just, um, this sounds kind of like new agey or whatever, but actually just just sort of listening to what the poem wants to do mm. and and it because i find that if i i can be i am the poem's worst enemy because mm. i kind of step into the into the poem or too much into the poem's way and then i feel like i i i have written the poem as opposed to the poem has written it do you know what i'm do you know what i mean i feel i feel like you really get in the way yeah. of the poem itself and so once i've kind of the poem has been captured and I've kind of got a form for it. Then I sort of at the end of it, I start thinking about the huh. the reader because then I have to sort of put another hat on, which is more the kind of editor type, you know, trying to think about their reading experience. You know, actually, that's really really hard. I actually think that's part of, uh, what for me one of the hardest things to do right. to understand that there are certain things that shouldn't be in there because i'm wedded to them for whatever reason because yeah, i've got yeah, this yeah. kind of very probably a very emotional attachment to certain things maybe things that brought me to the poem to the threshold in the poem in the first place shouldn't actually be in the poem right and i've left them in there because i have some sort of weird attachment to them mm. 
and I can't see that or hear that until maybe, you know, right to the end of the kind of process of writing it. That's interesting. So I guess to close this podcast, what sort of general advice would you give to people wanting to enter the competition, but people looking to write poems generally? Um, if their competition entry is the start of their writing career, what words of wisdom would you would you impart? Yeah, firstly, writing poems is amazing. So everyone everyone should write poetry. But um, sending in poems to something like the National Poetry Competition, what I would say was just to really don't think about what the judges want too much. Don't think, oh, well, I think, you know, Mona Rashi likes this kind of poetry. Um, poets have really wide tastes. Um, just because I write a certain way doesn't mean that I'm not going to appreciate a really amazing experimental prose poem. Um, in fact, I, I, I admire that kind of writing as much as I uh, admire a really distilled lyric poem. And, and I think the other thing that I think is really important is to actually finish the poem. And that sounds really basic, but um, what I sometimes find is that a poem is, is sort of 75% of the way there. And lots of things have been done. Um, the poem has been captured and, you know, but, but what, what hasn't happened is the kind of editing of that poem. And, and it's such a shame because you see a poem that is almost really a really, really, really good poem. Um, and are there any kind of final steps that you tend to see uh, a missed a lot like what other kind of classic mistakes someone yeah. could make in not finishing their poem i think one of them is rushing it so that you um kind of privilege the architecture of, of the poem on on the page as opposed to actually what it sounds like and so you kind of are almost there and then you think okay i'll just write the poem down quickly and it looks it looks kind of nice like this it looks nice in these kind of couplets or it looks nice sort of you know in these these prose prose chunks uh and actually what you what is really useful i think is to make sure that you have really listened to your poem out loud so that you can work out exactly where your line breaks are going to be things like that and also the other thing that i do and the other thing that it also does actually just really root out in sincerity in 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 the in the lines in the, in the poem itself the other thing that I think is really useful that I sometimes do is um, I give somebody else um, the poem to read and I listen to them reading it because it's amazing how, as, a, as if, you've read, if you've written the poem yourself and you're reading the poem, how you know where the issues are with the poem and how you can easily iron them out in your own reading. So that is a really, really useful tip, I think, to get someone else to read your poem for you. Wayne, do you got any tips? Go with your gut um, and also just really, really in, enjoy the writing process, enjoy getting stuck into the things that Mona just said. Like, it should be an enjoyable experience. If it's a struggle, maybe the reader's going to find it a struggle as well. And what you want is that the point of writing poems, like part of the point of writing them is because it's a, a, real, a real privilege and a pleasure to do. So make sure that you're enjoying that. And if you don't win, what's the, that, you know, nothing bad's happened, has it? You've still had fun writing a poem, which is, you know, the best way to look at it. That's the way that I look at it. And enter, 
as well. Like, don't think that you're not allowed to enter or you're not good enough to enter or whatever. Make sure that you, 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 you enjoy yourself and make sure that you send it and then be confident that you're allowed to write what you want to write and that if it doesn't look like someone else's poem, it's completely fine. In fact, some might consider it an advantage. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much, Mona Arshi and Wayne Holloway-Smith. Um, this has been a podcast from the Poetry Society. If you'd like to get involved in our projects, prizes, competitions, or events or publications, please do visit us online at poetrysociety.org.uk.